0: Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. As always, we are thankful for your presence and for this opportunity uh, for us to be together and to study a portion of God's Word, to worship Him, and to praise His holy name. We're very thankful for this privilege that's ours. If you have your Bibles and you'd be turning to Isaiah 55, that's where our sermon will come from this morning. As you're doing that, I will just tell you that the Bible is great course, you already know that, but there's a variety of reasons for why it's great, and among them, chiefly, is it reveals God to us. That's what the Bible does. When we read the Bible, we get to learn about God, and we get to learn who He is, and what He's like, and how He behaves, and what He expects from us. And so often, as we're learning that, the great demonstration of who God is occurs after his children sin and after the world rebels it's in those moments that God's character his nature his goodness is revealed and shown forth in the scriptures and maybe I would say now more than ever but really it's just the case always that men need God They need to come to God. They need to have a relationship with God. And if that's—if there's anything that's missing in the lives of humanity, that's it. Sometimes men behave in such a way, though, that they feel like they're so far from God that God doesn't want them anymore. They've done so much that God is not interested in them. And unfortunately, the world will sometimes help us believe that, kind of put it in our minds that you're no good anymore and that— nobody wants you, and that there's never going to come a time in your life where you're going to be useful in the world, and sometimes our own mind plays these things over and over again. This morning, we want to talk about God and talk about, ultimately, three steps to return to God, three steps back to God. How can I do that? The book of Isaiah is written in a time when the nation is physically prosperous, but they're spiritually bankrupt. They have rebelled. They have given themselves to idolatry. They have turned away from God. And as we'll see later, when we look at the opening of the book, God's very clear about that's their state. And yet throughout the book and in this section, God is asking them to restore the relationship. God wants them back. And he says that over and over and over again. And friends, if if you are estranged from God, then he wants you back. As we open up chapter 55, notice some of the things that God says by way of introduction, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You'll hear that refrain over and over again, come, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk. Without money and without cost, God is asking them, come, come, come. Why do you spend money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Again, the appeal is you're spinning your wheels. Why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep going down the path that you're going? Why do you keep it? In fact, he says, listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. Again, the appeal in verse number three, incline your ear and come to me. Listen, that you may live, I'll make with you an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Ultimately, this is a messianic section of the book, but I would urge the whole book is messianic. In fact, that's often what Isaiah is called, the messianic prophet. One author said of Isaiah, he's the dean of all the prophets. So often in the book, our attention is turned to the Christ and ultimately his coming kingdom. It's first to Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, but always looking forward. You can see this as early as Isaiah chapter 2, the kingdom that he will bring, that he will build, and all of the nations will go up to it. Chapter 7, he will be born of a virgin. Chapter 9, he's the eternal God of heaven. Chapter 11, and on and on. In fact, here in 55, we're just two chapters removed from 53, he will suffer for our sins. And so he says, Behold, I've made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the people. Behold, you will call a nation you do not know, and a nation which knows you not will run to the Lord. Because of the Holy Lord your God, even the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. And it's that that brings us to the section that we'll talk about this morning. Our emphasis will be on verse 6 and verse 7, and the three things that God says for them to restore this relationship, to come back to Him, to do all of the things that He's already spoken of. Let's note number one. It's there in verse number 6, where He says, Seek ye the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. One word for each point, and the first word is seek. How do I get back to God? Seek Him. In order to come to Him, you must do that. And God demands it. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of trust. In fact, seeking shows the effort on your part to have the relationship. He's not going to come force you back. He's not going to ensure that you do it against your will. And so, He wants you engaged in the process. Seeking demonstrates desire. Seeking reveals your heart and its intent. In fact, seeking manifests urgency, and ultimately seeking shows or demonstrates priority. You remember what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, Seek ye when? First. By way of priority. What am I doing? I'm seeking. God wants you to seek him, but listen, there's a warning in that verse. I trust that you grabbed it. The invitation is this, seek ye the Lord, but then it's followed by, while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. What's the warning? Friends, this invitation may not always be open. In fact, God is assessing your disposition toward him, your attitude toward him, and your behavior toward him, and whatever you do toward him will have consequences. In fact, if you have your Bible, hold your finger. We'll be right back to Isaiah, but turn over to the book of Proverbs. Looking at Proverbs chapter 1. Where again, this idea of God appealing and crying out and wisdom is personified as speaking, yelling, in fact, going to the chief place of concord, the busy intersections of life where people are busily going about. And verse 20 says, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out at the entrance of the gates, The city, she shudders, she utters her sayings. And here's her saying, how long? Oh, naive ones, will you love being simple-minded and you scoffers delight in themselves in scoffings and you fools hate knowledge? How long are you going to do that? And then she makes her appeal. Same plea. Verse 24, verse 23, turn to my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. I will make my words known to you. But there are consequences— Here's the second part, verse 24, because I called. And what did you do? Because I called and you refused. I stretched out my hand. No one paid attention. You neglected all my counsel. You did not want my reproof. And so, I will laugh when your calamity comes. I will mock when your dread comes When your dread comes like a storm, your calamity comes like a whirlwind, when distress and anguish come upon you, what will happen then? Verse 28 says, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would not accept my counsel. They spurned all my reproof. What happened? Verse 31. So they shall eat of the fruit of their own way. In the New Testament, we would call that sowing and reaping. Is there a time where you will reap what you sowed? Yes. Is that a reality that people have faced? Absolutely. You remember in the days of Noah— While the ark was preparing, there was pleading and preaching. What happened when the door closed and the rain came? Somebody say, well, Eric, you just said if I seek, God will answer. That's right, if you will seek while he may be found. But the judgment came, and at that point, well, it was too late then. In the New Testament, you see it. Matthew 25, the first 13 verses, there are 10 virgins we're told about. Five were wise, five were foolish. What happened to the foolish? They brought oil in the lamps, but they didn't bring any extra in case he delayed, and he delayed, and their lights began to go out. And what happened? The bridegroom came, and the door closed. There is consequences. There is a time at which, well, Eric, are you saying God doesn't want me back? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying if you leave this life without seeking the Lord, it'll be too late. The door to opportunity will close because you will no longer be alive on this side of eternity. And once you're there, after death, the judgment It's not that God has changed his disposition, it's that you've run out of time. Could that happen to a person? Yes. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. But that's not the only way it could happen. You know it could be the case that you leave the Lord and you start to believe there's no way back. Oh, you're still very much alive. And God is still very much with his hands outstretched, but for whatever reason, maybe sin and its toil, maybe guilt and shame, maybe, I don't know, the consequences of your own mind. You begin to believe, I can't get back, and thus you won't try. Or it could be the case that you no longer believe what you once believed. In Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse number 7, the Hebrew writer talks about Old Testament Israel. And he says, among other things about that group of individuals, God's people, he said, they do always err in their heart. They changed their heart toward God and they went astray. The Hebrew writer then warns the people who receive his letter. In verse number 12, he says, take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. How can brethren— have evil hearts of unbelief. You could leave the Lord. Brothers and sisters could knock on your door. They could ask to come in and sit and talk with you. They could plead with you to come back to the Lord and you could tell them, and some have, I no longer believe what you're telling me. I no longer believe in God. I no longer believe. In Jesus I no longer believe in the church I no longer believe there's a soul I no longer believe friends seek the Lord that's the warning the invitation is the same it's always the same seek the Lord but this caveat is there while he may be found call upon him while he is near the Bible has this wonderful way of expressing itself and its desires. And among God's desires is this. He desires to save. Let me ask you this. When does God want you saved? You know, the Bible answer to that is always the same. Now or today. Now is the time of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. Why? You could run out of time. You could change your mind. You could stop believing. And so, God would never put off your seeking Him. In fact, He would say, do that now. Secondly, how do I get back to God? You seek Him. Number two, verse number seven, the first part of the verse says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. The first word, seek. The second word, forsake. Let the wicked forsake his ways. Same thing repeated, the unrighteous man, his thoughts. You'll notice that the person is identified as the wicked. But who is he talking about? This is where I mean when you open the book, go back with me, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 1 and listen to the audience and the state of the nation. And it's at this time that God is saying these things. He is saying, seek. He is saying, forsake to the wicked. But are God's people wicked? Absolutely. In fact, verse number one says, Isaiah's prophesying during the days of the kings of Judah. And then in verse number three, he says, they are uh, not behaving as as well as uh, donkeys and oxes. They know better than the people. And then in verse four, he begins to describe them in earnest. And he says this, Alas, a sinful nation, a people weighted down with iniquity, offsprings of evildoers, sons who have acted corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Who are we talking about, God's people? What have they done? Read again the words in verse number 4. They act corruptly. They've abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One. They have turned away from Him. That's who they are. And as a result of that, he says and ask in asking verse 5, where will you be stricken again as you continue in rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. He says there's no soundness in it. The idea of soundness generally in Scripture is healthiness. That from the head to the feet, the whole body, there's no health in it. There's nothing sound about it. In fact, it's full of sores. He says in verse number six, the, from the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no, nothing sound in it, only bruises and welts and raw wounds. Not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. That's the state of the nation. It's a terrible picture of wounds oozing with, with with pus and just, it's just awful. And the whole head and body is that way. That's the state of the nation. In fact, in verse number 10, he says, hear the word, Lord, you rulers of Sodom. How about that to describe God's people? Rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. That's the state of the nation. And what so God is saying is in order to come back, you have to forsake that. You have to give that up. You can't continue that and have a relationship with God. And it doesn't matter really whether or not God is talking to his people or people in the world who have rebelled or rejected him. The plea is the same. You have to forsake wickedness. Psalm 14.1, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Israel is not saying there is no God. They just simply refuse to follow God. They refuse to give God their heart and their allegiance and their faithfulness. They refuse that. They'll acknowledge He is, but we will not walk in your ways. As a result of that, that's wickedness. Well, the individual who says there is no God, I won't walk after Him. He doesn't even exist. That's wickedness. Either way, God says you have to forsake that. The word means to leave, to lose, to forsake, to depart from, to leave behind. You can't keep some of them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in the New Testament, you see a good picture of this. The Apostle Paul goes into the city of Corinth, that would be Acts 18 and verse number 1 following. And when he goes into the city of Corinth, he preaches the gospel. But what kind of people are there in Corinth? Well, to give it some context, in the first century world, the word Corinthianized was used to describe people who were immoral. People who live debaucherous and lives they were simply said to have Corinthianized. That's the state of the nation. And to give us some insight, the state of Israel is God saying, you're like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the state of the nation. And when the apostle Paul gets there, that's what they're doing, and he preaches the gospel to them. Let me ask you this. When Paul went into that city, how, what did he say about sin? He said, you have to forsake it. First Corinthians chapter 6 and verse number 9, beginning, Paul says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he says this, do not be deceived. Friends, there's, there's another warning there worthy of our, our attention. Do not be deceived. It doesn't matter what people tell you do not be deceived. It doesn't matter what society says, do not be deceived. It doesn't matter how many people say it, do not be deceived. It doesn't matter what letters they have behind their name, do not be deceived. Why is God telling you that? Because you can be. You can be deceived into believing that if enough people say it, it becomes all right. You can be deceived into believing that if enough people sign off, and if if the right people say it's okay, it must be okay. You might even be deceived if a preacher stood up and said, this thing is okay for you to do. You might be deceived. Paul is talking to the Corinthian brethren, and he says, brethren— Be not deceived. Well, what about Paul? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor the drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. He goes on to say, such were some of you. What happened? They forsook their ways. In order to get to God, they understood we must give up our ways and our thoughts. It's the only way to have a relationship with God. They understood that. And so, Paul says, you were that way, but you were washed, but you were justified, but you were sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. What happened? We obeyed the gospel. When the gospel was preached in Corinth, it came with the understanding that you can't keep your ways and have God at the same time. That you can't keep your thoughts and have Jesus at the same time. That in order to get to God, I must forsake my thoughts. I must forsake my ways. They understood that. It's the plea that Isaiah is making. You and I sometimes don't give enough time or attention to the things that we're saying and arguing. This verse says, Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. In Scripture, the two are always connected. It's the thoughts that give rise to the way. It's the thought that gives rise to the actions. First we think and then we do or we practice. In fact, he's practiced it so long that now he's called it. And so, he's now referred to as a wicked man, the wicked. You have wickedness here, you have a man here, he practices it so long, he just becomes the thing. He's wicked, and God says, in order to get to me, you have to stop being that. It's your thoughts that got you there. It's your thoughts that gave rise to your way. And they're not my thoughts. They're not my ways. In fact, it's why there's such a scriptural emphasis on learning. It's why it's such a scriptural emphasis on the mind and it changing. The Bible will call it repentance. Literally, a new mind. That's what it means. It means you and your mind is no longer the one that governs your life and the direction you take. It means that the mind you had when you met Jesus, you emptied yourself. In fact, you put it to death, and then you took on the mind of Christ. Now, his ways are your ways. In order to get there, you have to forsake your ways. It's the only way you can. Sometimes we fight and argue over which one it is. Some people will say, well, Eric, you began by saying God is merciful and God wants us and God wants to restore us. That's right. He does. And the invitation is always the same. Come, 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 seek, seek, seek. That's always the invitation. So, some people say, well, the moment you get that in your heart, you're back to God. Well, you need to do that, but that's not exclusively how you get back to God, For we just read another word. What happens when you seek? You learn you have to forsake. You seek, and as you seek, you learn you have to forsake your ways. How can you get back to God? It's not either you seek or you forsake. It's you seek and you forsake. And when you forsake, you can get to the last word. It's there, second part of verse 57. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him, third word, return to the Lord. How do I get back? I seek. I forsake. Then I return. That's been God's plea from the beginning. In fact, it's his plea in this book. Go back to chapter 1. We didn't read it all. We didn't read the entirety of chapter 1. If we had, we would have read where they come before God, and God asks why in verse number 12. When you come to appear before me, who requires of this of you to trample my courts? And God will say, bring me no worthless offerings any longer, instances an abomination to me, new moons and Sabbaths, call and I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. Verse 14 says, I hate your new moons and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So, when you spread out your hands and pray, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you pray or multiply your prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Now, for some people, they get to that and they think, aha, God is at last done with. No! God is making an appeal to forsake that. And in verse 16, you begin to hear His appeal. In light of all of that, God says, wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight forsake, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, reprove the ruthless, defend the orphans. And verse 18, he says, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they should be as white as snow, that they be red like crimson, they will be like wool. How do we return? That's how we return. And what's God want? He wants that. He wants that. He wants that. He wants that. For who? Anybody. And everybody. It's the consistent plea of the Bible from cover to cover. Let me ask you this. When the very first sin occurred, where do you find God? He doesn't retreat to heaven. Verse 6. Woman saw the tree that was good for fruit, good good to the eyes, the tree to be desired to make one wise. She desired it. She took it. She gave to her husband with her. He did eat. The eyes of them both were open. They knew that they were naked. They sewed leaves together and covered themselves. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden. Where's God going? Toward them. What's God want? The relationship back. What's he want? He wants you to return. This is God's plea from the very first sin. In fact, it's this sin in the garden that will have God ultimately expressing that in the person of His Son in the garden. What's He doing? God has come in the flesh so that we can return to Him. In fact, God always moves first. He has to because once we sin, we can't get to Him, and so grace must be given. Sure enough, Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel offer, and Cain does it wrong, and God comes to Cain. Why are you angry? Why is your countenance falling? If you do well, you'll be accepted. When every imagination of thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually, Genesis 6-5, it grieved the Lord at his heart, and God said, I will destroy man. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It is the constant appeal from God. Come, return to me. Return to me. How do you do it? You seek, you forsake, and you return. Let me ask you this what'll happen next? We don't have to work hard. Is that the end of verse 7? What'll happen if you come back to him? What'll happen if you seek and forsake and return? The Bible says, and he will have mercy upon him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon he won't just pardon a little he won't just let you eke in he'll abundantly pardon it's the kind of language Peter uses with regards to eternal life so an entrance shall be opened abundantly unto you nobody is going to slide into heaven by the skin of their teeth that's not how the righteous are going to get there nobody is just going to barely slide in as the doors are closing and we may that's not how we get in no sir, no ma'am. An entrance is abundantly opened for the faithful. That's how we get in. How is God going to pardon? He will abundantly pardon. When will he do it? After you seek, after you forsake. And when you return, he will abundantly pardon. There's a great picture of it in the New Testament. In fact, there's a great picture of it here. Isaiah 53, just two chapters earlier. There's a great picture of it. Luke 15, is a great picture of it. The son leaves the father's house, lives a wayward life, comes to himself, and then he says, I will go home to my father. And though he himself didn't think he was worthy, and that's the way sometimes people talk, they talk just like this son. They say things like, I'm not worthy to be a son, but if I can just get back in. They come back to the Lord's church, they're thinking about it, they're contemplating it, And then they look at the members and they look at God and they say to themselves, you know what, I need to go back. I know I do, but if I can just sit on the back row, I won't bother nobody and I won't make a fuss and nobody even know I'm there. I just need to be in the building. And if I can just ease into the back door and maybe just sit off by myself, after all, I deserve my punishment. I deserve what I'm going to get. I'm just going to sit here in the back, but if I can just get back inside no, I don't have to be active anymore. I don't have to be involved. I don't have to teach. Oh, I'd love to. I'd love to get involved, but you know, I'm all used up and I'm good for nobody, but I just got to be in. And that's the way people talk. That's the way that son is talking. In fact, you should read Luke 15. You should listen to what he says about himself and about his father. Some of the things that will stand out as you read that will be things like this. He came to himself. He got up and he went to his father, and maybe even beyond his initial reaction and thought, maybe he didn't anticipate that his father was looking. Maybe he didn't anticipate that his father would run to him, because that's what he does. Maybe when he got to his father, his father got to him. He didn't anticipate that his father would embrace him and kiss him and weep over him. But you know what? None of that moved him because he still said what he rehearsed to his father. He said, Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. He said, if you could just make me a hired servant, I don't need to do much. I'll take out the trash. I'll just work. I don't need to be your son. You know, of interest to me when I read that account is his father didn't say a word to him it's almost as if he didn't even hear it it's almost as if he didn't even entertain it maybe I don't know why he was still holding him maybe that's when he said it but here's what the father did next not a word to his son he said to his servants go get the robe and the shoes and the ring And kill the fatted calf. For my son was dead and is alive. You're not coming back into the kingdom to sit on the back pew. You're not coming back to God to be a wasted individual who can't. You're coming back as a fully restored son or daughter. And his other son had a problem with it. King James uses the word meat. Other renderings might say things like proper. He said it was meat. It was proper that we should rejoice. The other brother said, your son. The father said, your brother, my son. If we look at people differently, And that'll be on us. But God won't. He said, your brother was dead. He's alive. My son has come home. Israel is in complete and total rebellion to God. And God says, if you'll seek, and if you'll forsake, then you can return. And I will have mercy and abundantly pardon. That invitation is open to you today. I don't know the state you're in, but I do know this. You can get back to God if you need to. If you are willing, God is willing. Today is the day of salvation. If you're not a Christian, God wanted this so much for you that he said, the Christ to die to make it happen it's possible because of Jesus and his shed blood we beg you this morning to come and accept his gracious offer believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God John 8:24 he is change your heart and your mind repent forsake your ways Confess the name of Jesus. Say the same thing. You believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And be immersed in water. Put the old man to death. Bury him and rise and walk in newness of life. And friends, if you'll do that, God will have mercy. He'll wash away all your sins. He will abundantly pardon. If you are his child, friends, don't stay away from the father. Come home to him. That's the plea. Oh, we'd love for you to come home so that we could have fellowship with you too and embrace you and hold you and hug you and help you. We'd love that too, but we're second to the Father's desire for you to come home to Him. And friends, if you need to do that, heed Paul's words in Romans chapter 2 and verse number 4 and let the goodness of God lead you to repentance. If we can help you in any way, we invite you to come as we stand. And as we sing.